Was General Motors a car company that also happened to provide healthcare benefits or a healthcare company that also happened to make cars? Hello, I'm Quinn Peterson, and this is the Payer Revolution Podcast, where it's my job to equip the CEOs, CFOs, and controllers of U.S. companies to dramatically lower their healthcare costs and change the entire healthcare system as a side effect. Now, back in the 90s, I attended business school in Detroit, where all of the case studies were about car companies. And I remember being shocked to learn that General Motors spent more money on their employee medical benefits than they did on building cars, which meant they were actually a healthcare company, not a car company. This was a, a concept that they called self-funding, and it was insane that they spent that much money on it. But on paper, at least, it made a certain amount of sense because they had millions in the bank and hundreds of thousands of employees and their dependents to spread the medical risk across. I thought for years that this is what self-insurance meant. It meant spending lots of money on thousands of employees in a way that might even endanger who you are as a business. But I recently ran into one of my neighbors and was talking with him about this. He's got his own business. It's small. He's got about 150 employees and he self-funds his insurance, which kind of blew my mind. I was like, I thought this was just for giant corporations. Now, in previous episodes of this podcast, we have talked about the importance of self-funding to the payer revolution. We've also heard various numbers about how many employees a company should have before it can self-fund. So it's time for us to take a deep dive on this one specific question. Fortunately, last year I sat down with Gwen King and Nicole Goodwill, two insurance brokers who really know a lot about both self-funding and small and medium-sized groups. I'll link to their contact info in the show notes, but let's dive in and ask them about self-funding for small groups. So what I've found out is small is fewer than 100, midsize is 100 to 499, and large is 500 or more. Is that correct? Um, actually, for underwriting, 50 or less is considered small group. Between 50 and depending on the carrier, up to 250 could be, could be midsize. And I think over that could be considered large. Each carrier has their own specifications for midsize and large group. That's Gwen King, a broker with clients in Nevada and Utah who specializes in partially self-funded benefits plans. So this is basically decided by the carriers. There's no government entity regulating sizes. There is, and that is... The ACA has determined, and some states have a differentiator of what small group is. Some states say small group is 100 and less, and some say 50 and less. Utah's 50 less. That's Nicole Goodwill, a broker with clients in Utah and Arizona. So if self-insuring doesn't require millions in the bank and hundreds of thousands of employees... How small can a company get? Well, that's carrier specific. We have a carrier that we work with that it will go down to two employees. So you could have as few as two employees and self-funding would still make sense? Correct. So it sounds like there's no real floor to this. I think also when, yep. you, when you're saying self-funding, um, it's probably better to say partially self-funded groups just because true self-funding you're not going to get into until you're about 500 plus. It turns out that the question, how many employees do I need to have before partially self-funding makes sense, is the wrong question to be asking. So 
If there's no floor, what are some of the factors that go into deciding whether self-funding makes sense? For instance, is it the mix of your workforce, age, sectors of the economy, blue collar versus white collar? What, what kind of things do you look at when you try and decide if somebody should be self-funded? Health, you know, really, um, it really is going to be truly based on the health of the company. If they're in good health and uh, doing well, then they're going to be a great candidate to self to partially self-fund. If they're not, it just may not be for them. They're probably going to be better off in the fully insured market. So the health of a company's employees is the most significant factor in partial self-funding success. But tied to that is another factor, turnover. I'd like to add to it. Nicole said that sometimes there are certain industries that would not make sense to do that. Sometimes restaurants, you know, people who have a lot of turnover doesn't make a lot of sense to offer a partially self-funded plan. And why is that? Because there's a lot of risk and exposure of the unknown. Stop loss carriers want to know what type of audience are underwriting purposes. So if there's a lot of on and off, it makes it difficult for them to capture a good picture of what will be forthcoming. So if I understand right, it's not a function of the turnover itself. It's just the uncertainty that comes with not knowing who's going to be covered from plan year to plan year. Correct. Employee health and uncertainty about employee health have everything to do with whether a company should consider partial self-funding. Company size, it turns out, is just not that big a deal. What is it that has changed that makes self-funding different than it used to be? Well, I just think that the carriers have gotten a lot more aggressive. They look, you know, they've they've gotten a lot more, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, where they're looking outside the box. Creative. Yeah, more creative. Um, in how they underwrite and are willing to take on more risk than they were before. I think the ACA really pushed them into that kind of thought process. I mean, I don't know, Gwen, what do you think about that? I just think that it's changed so much. And I think the ACA was just part of that. Right. And because we can follow like the ERISA laws for the self-funded, partially self-funded plans, that assists with how things are written and how the carriers were able to develop these plans for us. They just got creative. Now, you probably heard ACA and ERISA and knew just exactly what those words meant. I, on the other hand, Googled them. ACA is the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, and ERISA is the Employee Retirement Income Security Act which somehow over the course of 40 years of amendments has also grown to now cover employee benefits and medical plans. Which points to the fact that this is a field full of specialized laws and jargon and knowledge. How many HR staff or office staff should a company have before they consider launching into owning their own plan? Well, you got to remember a lot of a lot of groups don't have an HR specific person. There's people that are playing that role, but that are also doing other job duties. So you've got a lot of smaller groups that fall into that category that they're doing HR, they're doing payroll, they're doing every, a little bit of everything. So I don't necessarily think it's in, in staff. I just think it's in making sure that you as a broker are understanding their whole makeup. But that doesn't mean that no skill or knowledge is required in a self-funded company's front office. 
Well, like I said, first off, we want to make sure that there is a designated person to have as a point of contact because we want to be, we want them involved and to reiterate why they went with a level funded or partially self-funded plan. They have to have that responsiveness when something occurs. We want to make sure people are being enrolled in a timely fashion, um, terminated in a timely fashion, uh, someone that is proactive with the benefits. And I know Nicole has had this problem. We've had groups that nobody really watches that. Nobody really audits the bills and that makes it difficult. So if you've had that type of client in the past, before we would consider moving them to a level-funded level plan, we would have a serious conversation with the powers that be on why it's so important to be involved with this. That makes sense. It sounds like if you are planning to go to a partially self-funded plan, you don't need a particular skill set and you don't need a certain number of people in your HR office. But what you do need to do is recognize that you are going to be actively managing this. This is your plan. You own it and it's not going to take care of itself. Is that fair to say? Yep. Yep. Now, I went into this topic thinking that there might be a sweet spot or a magic number of employees above which some form of self-funding makes sense and below which it doesn't. What I've learned is that not only is there no magic number, but the question of size isn't even the right one to ask. I think we've learned here in this episode that employee health, certainty around employee health, and having a responsible member of the staff assigned to the benefits are the keys to successfully self-funding. My thanks to Gwen King and Nicole Goodwill for stepping in to answer my questions about this topic. You can find links to them along with the show notes for this episode at payerrevolution.com. I hope you've enjoyed this short episode and that you now have a good idea about how to think about your company's size in relationship to self-funding. I also hope that this has helped you to believe that you do have the power to be part of the revolution. If you have a comment, question, or suggestion, head over to payerrevolution.com and click the appropriate link. I'll be back here in two weeks with more information and resources to help you take control of your employee medical plan and join the revolution. Until then, Viva la Revolution!